Well, Father, we, we already have uh, thanked you for the good work and for the good word from Chad and uh, some of us who have been a part of that process for a while and, and watching the work you've done and the journey he's been on over these last five years. Uh, it's, it's just a night to say thank you for your goodness and for your grace. I know there are other guys here that are in the middle of, of their journey. Uh, there are guys here that are in that waiting mode. And the problem with waiting is we wonder if anything is ever going to happen because it sure looks like it isn't. And, and that's, that's when we're fighting a battle. We're, we're fighting a battle to trust. We're, we're fighting a battle to keep perspective. Uh, so often, Lord, the, the days turn into weeks when we're waiting, and then the weeks turn into months. And yes, the months can even turn into years, and we begin to lose hope. I pray for the guys that, uh, that are waiting. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that they would be mindful of the fact that uh, as they are waiting, uh, you are working. You are not passive and you are not ambivalent. You are just simply getting things ready for them. And I think of that uh, Isaiah 64, 4 passage. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. So, Lord, for the guys who are waiting, give them hope. Give them fresh uh, uh, vitamin B12 shot of hope tonight. That you're there, that you're working, even when they can't see it. Maybe they've had discouraging news over this last week. Let them know that you're with them. Uh, Lord, the scripture says that uh, my times are in your hand. Uh, you run uh, the timing of our lives, our conception, our birth, our death, and everything in between on this earth. Your timing is perfect. We're going to see that tonight. We'd ask that you'd open our eyes, that we could see your truth. We ask that your spirit would teach us. We ask for, uh, we ask for uh, open hearts. We ask, Lord, for... Uh, for willingness to hear what you want to say to us. We're not teachable. We're not going to get anywhere in life. So give us teachable hearts. That'd be our prayer tonight. And we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you are a physician, a doctor, a medical doctor, no matter what your uh, field of specialty, uh, you don't necessarily have to be a good storyteller. We don't think of doctors as storytellers, but if you are a physician, you better be a good story listener. Whenever you go in to see a doctor for the first time, it's going to take a while to get in to see him. They kind of plan that. They have a room, and they call it a waiting room. But you're in there waiting for a reason. One of the things you're going to do is that they're going to hand you, uh, yeah, you know the drill, they're going to hand you one of those deals with the cardboard backing and you've got to fill it out. And one of the things that you're going to fill out is your history. 
uh, is, is your story. That doctor wants to know, before he gets with you, he wants to know your story. He wants to know your medical story. He wants to know um, if you have this or this or this or this. And they got about 40 or 50 or 60 things, and you say yes or no, and you check the box. Uh, that's a big deal. Because, see, that's all part of your story. Not only does he want to know your story, he wants to know your family's story. So he's going to ask about your mother and father. He's going to ask if they're still living. If they are deceased, he's going to ask at what age they died. Uh, he wants to know if this is in your family background, if this or this or this or this or this. Why is that? Be because uh, none of us as individuals uh, live in isolation. Uh, God puts us in families. Even if you're single, you have a family. Uh, you, you have a grandpa and a grandma, a great-grandpa, a great-grandma. You're part of a family. Even if you're not married, even if you don't have kids, you've got a family. Uh, that's the way God works. He puts us in family units. Now, what's a family? A family unit is made up of individuals, individuals who are connected by blood, they are also individuals who are going to make uh, their own choices as they go through life. They're going to determine their attitudes towards certain things. They're going to decide which direction they're going to take in life. Uh, each individual family is going to decide what kind of people they're going to hang out with. They're going to decide what's important to them, what value system they're going to adopt. Um, that's why families are so interesting. Uh, we're not robots. We're not all the same. Uh, we're not, uh, uh, you know, at Christmas we do the cookie thing. And uh, shoot, when I think of cookies, I think of gingerbread cookies. And I think of gingerbread men. Those guys all look the same. Families aren't like that. We're connected, but we're different. We have been looking at Moses, and before that we looked at, um, we looked at Paul. We're going to switch tonight, and we're going to look at Joseph. And Joseph is one of the guys in Scripture whose story is very well known. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 37, and that's really where we're introduced to the story of Joseph. Begins in verse 1 with his father, talks about his brothers. Very famous story in Genesis 37. And, and here's the culmination of that story with his dad and his brothers. Um, it really comes down to the, to the last verse of Genesis 37 where it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now, what's that all about? What do you mean the Midianites sold him in Egypt? Well, that's because his brothers sold him to the Midianites because his brothers hated his guts, because his brothers were really seriously thinking about killing him. Uh, but they didn't do it. Now, the details of that story are all in that chapter, but that chapter ends by saying this uh, group of slave traders, this slave caravan, these merchants that would, that would buy anything, including human beings, they got to Egypt and they sold him to this guy named Potiphar. And that's kind of how the story of Joseph begins, and that is a critical chapter in his story. 
But that's not all there is to the story. And to understand the story of Joseph and how it is, as we continue this idea of how God works in the life of a man, how God crushes and then constructs a man, as we begin with Joseph, we got to ask a little bit about Joseph's history. And not only do we ask a little bit about Joseph's history, but we need to ask about Joseph's family history. And it really is a remarkable story. Uh, it, it really doesn't begin with his father, Jacob. It begins back in Genesis 12. Uh, in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, just kind of generally speaking, God is dealing with the whole world. That's what he's doing. Beginning in Genesis 12, he starts working with one guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham doesn't seek God out. God seeks Abraham out. That's how it always works. Always. God is the initiator. God comes after us. We don't come after God. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. The initiative didn't come from Peter and John and James. The initiative came from Christ. He went after them. We love him because he first loved us, you see. This is what happened with Abraham. God went after Abraham. And, and Abraham has this wife, Sarah. Now, not only is God going after this guy, Abraham, but what God is going to do is God's going to bless this guy. And, and, and God gives him some promises, and God makes a covenant with him. One of the things that God says is, I'm going to give you a family, and I'm going to bless your family, and I'm going to bless the whole earth through your family. You know the story. You know that he's getting on up in years as the story goes by, and he gets, uh, I mean, this guy's in his 90s. He doesn't have a, doesn't have a kid. And his wife's right behind him. And... Um, and they're both not able. They're dead. They're dead physically. So God does a remarkable thing and gives them a son by the name of Isaac. Now, this isn't Abraham's first son. Because you see, as he got older and older and older and was having to wait and wait and wait, and we don't like waiting. And see, the longer you wait, the more you wonder now, how in the world is this thing going to come off? How in the world is God going to pull this off? Because I'm not getting any younger. And, you know, and, 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 you know I mean, he'd watch the commercials on TV, and he'd see the Viagra stuff, and he'd see the, what do you, the, all, those other, all this other stuff that's come out. No, there wasn't any of that stuff. And he's thinking, gosh, I'm not getting any younger, and she's not getting any younger, and I'm waiting. And I know what God said, but, you know, sometimes we think God needs help. And doggone it. We'll help him. I mean, we, we all do it. Because what happens is the circumstance, God gives a promise, but, but the circumstances keep, um, keep tightening up. And, and, and we can't see a way that God can pull this off. So we decide we're going to step in and we're going to help him out, which is precisely what Abraham and Sarah did. So, as was the custom, Sarah had this uh, uh, handmaiden, uh, Hagar, and she said, hey, you, you go have this baby with her. So he has a son by the name of Ishmael. Um, 
Ishmael is the father of all the Arabs. So all this stuff we've got going on today, all these guys that are upset over Looney Tunes, that all goes back to Abraham trying to help God out. All this stuff in the Middle East, Dome of the Rock, all this stuff, Palestinian state, all this stuff, nukes in Iran, all this stuff, all goes back to Genesis. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't need any help. What God would desire is that we trust him and that we would be willing to wait as long as he asks us to wait. David said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. I think that's Psalm 27. Huh. Sometimes we're almost ready to despair because we think we're not going to see the goodness. But for all you know, it's right around the corner. So you got Abraham, then you got Isaac. He's got Ishmael. But then he's going to have this, um, he's going to have this other boy, the boy of promise, which is Isaac. Then Isaac has a son. Um, in fact, Isaac has two sons. This is all in Genesis. This is Joseph's family history, by the way. We're just in the waiting room filling out the family history here. Okay? You got Abraham, you got Isaac. Isaac marries, anybody know? Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> There's going to be a quiz later. Isaac and Rebecca, and then they're going to have kids. So they got twins. And uh, this gets real interesting because what's going to happen is the younger is going to be preeminent. The older is going to serve the younger. And, and God determined this, and this is part of what's taught in Romans chapter 9. So uh, Isaac has twin boys, Isaac and Esau. Uh, 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 Jacob and Esau, I'm sorry. Jacob, this, this stuff, I need to go watch the movie again. <laughs> Starts getting cluttered up. Um, so he has two boys, Jacob and Esau. And then at a certain point, what happens is, uh, is uh, you know, Esau is this big stud guy, he works out all the time, and, you know, he, he's, he drives a pickup, and he's got a gun rack, and, you know, he's just an outdoors guy. And, uh, and his dad really likes that. Uh, Jacob's kind of the quiet guy. He's always at the library. He's always studying. You know, he's just real quiet, kind of like, just not a, he's just the opposite of his brother. Well, gosh, you know, it's kind of interesting because these guys are just polar opposites, which often happens, doesn't it, between kids? They're just so different. That's why parenting is such a huge challenge. That's why being a father is so different. You can't do it the same way with each kid because each kid is different and has a different temperament and a different personality. That's what was going on in this family. So at a certain point, uh, what's going to happen is that as uh, as Isaac gets real old, uh, what's going to happen is that uh, his son is going to come in and deceive him uh, at his mother's behest. And he's going to go in and uh, get a blessing because he wants this wild game stew that Esau puts together. So Esau goes out to get it. And the mom says, hey, listen, let's put some hair on your arms and all this stuff. And you go in and you take this and give it to your dad. And he does. And his dad says, yeah, yeah, who is this? He says, I'm Esau. 
You don't sound like Esau. You know the story. So he cons his father. He deceives his father. And his father bless, gives the blessing to him. Esau comes back with the stew and goes in, and his dad says, who are you? He says, I'm Esau. And his dad realizes he's been deceived. So you got some real bad blood now between the two brothers. So what happens is Jacob, his mom says, hey, you, you, just for a while, this is all in Genesis. You can read this. This is sort of the cliff note version. His mom says, hey, just for a short time, get out of here and go visit my family. Until, until things calm down and everybody cools off. So he does. And Jacob goes and he... See, Jacob, Jacob is a deceiver. That's sort of Jacob's deal. Uh, Jacob always had an ace up his sleeve. Jacob uh, was always thinking. He was always 10 steps ahead of everybody. He knew how to manipulate people he was willing to lie. He was willing to do anything he, he needed to do in order to make it come his way. So what he does is he takes off to his, uh, to his mother's relatives, and he runs into this guy named Laban. And Jacob thinks he's pretty sharp, but he's never run into Laban before. So when he gets over there, he sees this gal, who Laban, he sees Rachel. And man, he just goes head over heels for, for Rachel. And, and he says, hey, I'll, I'll work for you for her. For seven years. Great. Sucker works his tail off. And then, you know, they have the big wedding thing. And this sucker's, you know, dropping the, the Bud Light and the Jack Daniels. I mean, he's just, he's just knocking himself out and uh, celebrating the big deal. Gets in there. And see, Rachel has a sister by the name of Leah. Rachel was gorgeous. Leah was not. And so what Laban did, this guy schnockered out of his mind. He didn't know what he's doing. And what he does is, is that he sends Leah in instead of Rachel. They have intercourse, and he's married to her. He wakes up, and he goes, my gosh. <laughs> and it's really interesting. The great deceiver, the great deceiver got deceived. Uh, what happens is he winds up marrying Leah and Rachel. Now, his troubles are only just beginning because he's going to wind up with 12 sons uh, and a daughter uh, from four different women. And it's going to get real, real interesting. One of those boys is going to be a boy by the name of Joseph. So now we come to Joseph. And we ask the question, well, why would his brothers... Why would his brothers sell him into slavery? Because they hated his guts. Let's take a look at this story. Here's what I want to, guys, here's kind of what I want us to see tonight. We're living our lives. We're going through things. We're going through uh, events in our lives, and God is sovereign over those events, and God is getting us ready for the work that he has for us to do. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before you were ever born, that you might walk in them. So God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. He's constructed you. He's crafted you. You're in that journey somewhere. You're in that process somewhere. Maybe you're 
you're in your sweet spot. Maybe you're back here waiting. Maybe you're in a difficult chapter. Maybe you're in a good chapter, but you're in process. Uh, we tend to see what's right in front of us we, we, and, and, and maybe what's ahead of us a year or two down the road because we're guides. But what we seldom do is, is back up and look at how that fits in a family history because, you see, you have a history. You have an immediate history, but you also have a family history. Uh, why were you raised the way that you were raised? Why did your father raise you the way that he raised you? You know why? Because of how he was raised. And, and a lot of times, a father who was raised a certain way, we all do this. We see things that are positive. We see things that are negative. And we say to ourselves, man, when I have kids, I won't do it that way. So you, maybe your father did it like this. You swing over this way. You know, it's interesting when you start tracing family backgrounds is that you can see in this generation, they're here. The next generation swung here. You know what you're going to see in the next generation? Back here. Next generation, back here. It's really interesting. You can do a study in, uh, on mother-daughter relationships. You have a mother here that's an absolute perfectionist. You walk, in, you walk into her garage, and, and, and you could lick your dinner off the floor of the garage and have complete total hygiene. But sometimes a daughter reacts to that. You walk into that daughter's house, you can't even find the garage floor because <laughs> she was raised by a perfectionist. And she's just an absolute mess when it comes to the house and cleaning. I mean, it's just, it's just absolute chaos. So then what's going to happen to her daughter? She's going to swing the other way because she doesn't want to live like that. Isn't it amazing how we're all affected by our families and by our upbringing? Genesis 37, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land, this is Jacob now, where his father had sojourned, his father being Isaac, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhau and the sons of Zilpau, his father's wives. So his dad had kids by four different women, Rachel and Leah, and then also these two gals who were handmaidens just as Hagar was a handmaiden to Sarah. So here's what you got. You got, you got 12 boys, you got one girl, by four different moms, all living under the same tent. Now that's a breeding ground for a lot of trouble, for a lot of jealousy, for a lot of behind-the-scenes bickering, for you can just imagine it. That was Joseph's background. You know, it's interesting. I mean, God's sovereign over the family from which you came. He is. We hear a lot today about dysfunctional families. If you want to see some dysfunctional families, just read the Bible. They're everywhere. Wouldn't it be great to have a perfect family? It would be great. Not going to happen on this earth. Why is that? Well, because it takes perfect people to make a perfect family. And you know what? We just don't have it. I love that Howard Hendricks story. You've probably heard it. Years ago, folks move into Dallas, this couple. They see Dr. Hendricks. Introduce themselves. They say, hey, we're looking for a church here. 
He says, oh, great, what, what are you looking for? And they start telling him what kind of church they're looking for. Go down their list. He listened. He said, well, that's good. You're looking for the perfect church. If you find it, don't go there. You will ruin it. <laughs> there are no perfect churches. There are no perfect families. This was a particularly dysfunctional family. Uh, that affected Joseph. We've all been affected by the families in which we were raised. Now, here's the thing about God. God can take the good things in your family and use them to your advantage, obviously. If you have a father who's a, who's a balanced man and a man who loves Christ and loved your mother and, you know, I mean, the guy just did it the way he was supposed to do it, you're, you're, gosh, you're blessed to have that. Uh, some of you don't have that. But well, you know the amazing thing about the Lord is if you had a father that was the absolute antithesis of that, God can use that to your advantage too. There's a guy that has a ministry in New York City to, to, uh, to street kids, uh, to teenage kids and kids in junior high school. And he has thousands of them coming to his Sunday school in different parts uh, of uh, the different boroughs of New York. Thousands of these kids kids from horrible backgrounds. A lot of their, uh, you know, a lot of them don't even know their dad, their mothers are drug addicts. These kids come by the thousands to this guy's Sunday school. I, I, I saw him at the airport at JFK a few years ago, and we were talking. Real unique guy, long hair down to his shoulders, you know. Interesting guy. What a ministry he has. I mean, he's, God's used him in such a remarkable way now, one reason for that is he remembers when his mother left him on the street when he was 12 years old, and he's never seen her again. No money, no relatives, no nothing. So, see, he's got a special place in his heart for those kids because he knows exactly what that's like. Because God is sovereign over all of our family backgrounds, do you, know, do you know how much good has accrued into the lives of thousands of kids just like that because he had a rough upbringing? That's a great thing about God. God is sovereign over your history. Not just your history, but your dad's history and your dad's history and your dad, all the way back, God's sovereign. And God uses all of those things to construct us and to make us. And he weaves them. It's like a recipe. He puts together and pops it in the oven and out you come. And then he's going to use you and your wife with your kids. And, and see, all these, God's working through all these events and all these circumstances, good and, and bad and ugly. So we meet Joseph. You guys still with me? Verse 2. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, 17, along with the sons of Bilhau and the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives. And uh, so he's pastoring, you know, they're doing the sheep thing. And then it says, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, as you get to know Joseph, Joseph had some character. <laughs> Obviously, he had some great character. And when he brought back a bad report to his dad, 
I mean, he came back and he said, well, here's what they're doing, Dad. Uh, that didn't win him any points with his brothers. Now, his brothers already had an issue with him. That's the next verse. Now, Israel, meaning uh, Isaac, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. This is the coat of many colors. Uh, Joseph was the only one that had this beautiful coat. Uh, you know, Dad went to L.L. Bean, saw this thing on the rack, visiting Maine, store with a little trout pond in it. And his dad got him a coat and didn't get his other brothers a coat. This, this is kind of interesting. Uh, I like what Warren Wearsby has said in his comments on Joseph and this coat of many colors, which is a famous, famous... I mean, we're still doing this story. They do it on Broadway. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they've done a, a Broadway show on this. Here's what Wearsby says. I, I said earlier, Isaac. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm confusing these guys. I meant, you know, Joseph's father was Jacob. Israel was Jacob. Excuse me. He says, Jacob had something more important than fashion in mind when he gave Joseph this special coat. It was probably his way of letting the family know that Joseph had been chosen to be his heir. That's important. Reuben had forfeited his firstborn status because of his sin with Bilhah. That's Genesis 35, 22. Reuben was, the, was his first son, but he'd been eliminated because of what he had done. His next son, Simeon, had been involved with Levi in slaughtering the men of Shechem. Uh, that story is told in Genesis 34 when their sister Dinah got uh, raped. And then they went in and told the guys, well, she can't marry you until you circumcise yourself, all of you. And they did, and then they went in and murdered all of them. So that eliminated Simeon. Uh, furthermore, Jacob's first four sons had Leah as their mother, and Jacob hadn't intended to marry Leah. The full intent of his heart was to marry Rachel, but Laban had tricked him. Jacob might have reasoned, in God's sight, Rachel was my first wife and Joseph was my firstborn. Therefore, Joseph has the right to be treated as the firstborn. All the brothers knew that their dad loved Joseph the most. They lo he loved him as the firstborn. That's why he had this coat. So they hated his guts. Verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now then it gets interesting, because what happens is God has a work for Joseph to do. And this kid has a sense of this. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. You know, in a family, you ought to be able to share what you're excited about. In a family, you ought to be able to, sh to share your hopes and dreams and what you... You, you know, every, every home has an atmosphere. Every home. The home in which you were raised had an atmosphere. Um... Restaurants are big on atmosphere. You notice this? Now, some restaurants, they're, hey, let's be honest. We're men. We want the food. We, we could really give a rip about atmosphere. You ever been down to this place down on Northwest Highway in the Tollway in that little shopping center called Vice Versa? It's pretty good. Home-cooked meals. I, I mean, they got it in there. I mean, it's the real thing. 
Is vice versa still existing? It's gone. All right, don't go down there tomorrow for lunch. If they're gone, I think the reason they're gone, probably the health department closed them up because they'd been there a long, long time. And the thing I remember about vice versa is you had these old Formica tables and the Naga hide, but, but it was all ripped and the stuffing was coming out of the Naga hide seats and the, the Formica was stained. And, you know, they, they, had, they had flies there they knew by name. <laughs> but I'm kind of exaggerating here. But I'm going to tell you something. They had great food. They, they I mean, just great pot roast, great pork chops, great vegetables, those homemade rolls just dripping in butter. And, and if you got there past 11 o'clock and you'd go through the line, they were lined up outside the door of this. Let me tell you, there was no atmosphere there. There was just food. And, and it's mostly guys that were lined up. Now, sometimes our wives want to go on a special event. They want to go to a restaurant that not only has good food, but they want to go to a restaurant that has ambiance. I looked that word up. It means expensive. The nicer the atmosphere, the more the money. That's kind of fun to do every once in a while. Yeah, you know, it's just not restaurants that make a big deal out of atmosphere. Every home has an atmosphere. Every home. The home in which you were raised. You know, the atmosphere was one of two things. The atmosphere in the home in which you were raised was either constructive or destructive. You were either built up or you were torn down. Now, there's nothing you can do about your family. There's nothing you can do about the way your father raised you or if he wasn't there. There's not a thing you can do about it. You're just a kid. You're just showing up. But see, now we're the husbands, we're the fathers, we're the grandfathers. And you know what's interesting about that? Now, and we should say this, the atmosphere in the home is set by the father. So the question is, in your home, what kind of atmosphere are you setting? Is it constructive or is it destructive? Are people built up or are people torn down? Can't you do anything right? Well, actually, he can He can. And you know he can. So what kind of punk are you at 40 to be picking on some kid that's nine years old and asking him some stupid question like that? Hmm? Just thought I'd ask. So you set the atmosphere. And what's really bad is when it's a destructive atmosphere and you're a church guy. That's what's really bad news. Because instead of there being grace and mercy and love and discipline and all those good things that help kids to grow into mature adults, there's all this criticism and all this accusation and all this, you know, can't you do anything right? The last thing you want to do is be an authoritarian father. That's the last thing you want to do. Uh, authoritarian fathers are very demanding. Some of you guys had an authoritarian father, and you're still, quite frankly, you might be 65 years old, but you're still trying to get over him. And maybe he's been dead for 20 years. 
Authoritarian fathers put their stamp on their kids, and, uh, and they hurt them deeply. And they affect them in a very, very negative way. So don't you, you better not ever express a dream or a hope in the hearing of uh, a family that has a, constru- a, a, a destructive atmosphere because you're going to get ripped apart. Now, let's go back to Joseph here. Joseph's a kid. He had a dream. You know, kids, kids don't have a lot of discernment. Kids, a lot of times, don't know what to say and when to say it. That's part of being a kid. So what does he say in this dysfunctional family with all of his brothers and his dad there and all this? I, I don't get the sense so much that his dad was against him, but his brothers were sure against him. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. You know, that, you know what a sheave is. That's, that's where they cut the, the wheat stalks or the flax stalks, and then they bind them up. And they're just, you know, standing there in the field. That's what they did before they had, you know, square bales or round bales, before they had John Deere tractors. We were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Well, his brothers weren't real bright, but they could get this. <laughs> then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream. So he's got the coat, and he's got the dream his dad really favors him more than them than, than, than he does the others. Uh, he has another dream. Lo, I've had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. I mean, this kid, this kid had gone to a Donald Trump seminar or something. I mean, he's got the whole world bowing down to him. He's got the sun and the moon and the stars and the whole thing. He related, verse 10, to his fathers and brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. Catch this. But his father kept the saying in mind. His dad dad didn't totally discount. Isn't that interesting? Don't go stomping on somebody's dream. Now, maybe they could share it in a little discerning way than they have. You don't know what God's going to do, do you? Who's going to lead the church? Let me ask you something. Who's going to be leading the church of Jesus Christ in the next 40 years? So so who's going to be the Billy Graham in 40 years? Who's going to be the Swindoll in 40 years? Who's going to be the Tony Evans in 40 years? Well, it might be some kid at your house. You know? Might be some kid in the nursery here on Sunday. Might be some kid in here screaming when Chuck's trying to preach. Might be some kid at your house with crud coming out of his diaper. Snot coming out of his nose. That's how leaders begin. You like that, huh? (laughs) All great leaders begin with crap coming out of their diapers and snot coming out of their nose. 
you see? But God's going to shape them, and God's going to use them, and God's got a plan for their life, you see? And, and I'll tell you something. Who's going to be leading the evangelical church in America in 40 years is really going to have to have some character and some courage because it's going to be such an anti-Christian environment. So don't stomp on their dreams. Uh, remember now we're still in the waiting room. This is Joseph's family history. You know what, you know what I love about this stuff? I really do, is that this is God's history. None of this stuff happens by accident. None of this stuff happened by chance. Um, you read the scriptures, you know, God has a plan for the ages, does he not? Is, is there not a plan that's revealed to us in the word of God about how things are going to come to culmination in the last days? Sure, we, we know that to be true. We know, we know from Daniel, we know from Ezekiel, and we know from Revelation. We, we know it's going somewhere. Well, it, it's, it's just not going somewhere with the Antichrist and the false prophet and all this, and, you know, the two witnesses come back. You know, we're all a part of that somehow. We, we all play different roles in different parts, and we're all connected, and, and God's weaving the whole thing together. Um, verse 12 then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem Israel said to Joseph and that would be Jacob I'll get it right this time are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem come and I will send you to them and he said I'll go then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. Now, I think that's interesting. Here is dad sending him out. You know why he's sending him out? Because he knew he'd come back and give him the truth. He needed an honest report. This kid wasn't afraid to tell his dad what needed to be said. His brothers couldn't bribe him. They couldn't con him. They, they couldn't say to him, hey, hey, don't tell dad. Because he brought a bad report before, he'd do it again if he needed to. And they knew that, and that's one reason they hated him. You know what I see here in this kid's early life? I see a willingness to stand alone. To stand alone. At some point, we've got to develop that. And we all want to be liked, and we all want to be popular, but at some point, you've got to stand alone and you've got to take the heat. And you've got to do the right thing. And, and, and you know, it's always the right thing to tell the truth to your father. And it's always the right thing to tell the truth to someone who is in authority. So if there's something illegal going on in your business where you work and there are some guys doing that, and, and what's the big pressure? Well, you know, hey, hey, don't say anything. Well, maybe you ought to say something. Maybe you're precisely the guy to say something because things that are wrong that are being done that are absolutely... Hey, do you want to be an accessory to that? See, these are all... These are very hard things, and these are very difficult things. So he goes looking for his brothers. Fifteen, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. The man asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. Hey, they've moved on to Dothan. Verse 18. Now, here's where it gets interesting. When they saw him from a distance, his brothers... And before he, claimed, 
before he came close to them. They plotted against him to put him to death. I mean, this is how much they hated this kid. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, who was the firstborn, heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. They took him, threw him into the empty pit. Now the pit was empty without any water. They sat down and eat their meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. That's interesting, Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? They're their distant cousins from their great-great-grandfather, Abraham, his son, Ishmael. And they see these Ishmaelites, and they're coming from Gilead, and they're on their way to Egypt. And Judah, who was a bad dude, said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother's own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Another comment from Wearsby. This is really interesting. He says this, For the Christian believer, Joseph is one of the richest illustrations of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. Joseph is like Jesus in that he was beloved by his father and obedient to his will. He was hated and rejected by his own brethren and sold as a slave. He was falsely accused and unjustly punished. He was finally elevated from the place of suffering to a powerful throne, thus saving his people from death. There are some really remarkable parallels to the story of Joseph and to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Reuben comes back in verse 29, and uh, he says, where's Joseph? And the kid's gone, and he finds out what they did. So they took, in verse 31, they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood and sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this, please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. He examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So J Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. He refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down the Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Uh, you know what's interesting to me about this is, uh, is Jacob. Uh, how this broke his heart. And, and what happened here with Jacob was this. Was that Jacob was deceived by his own sons. What's, what's very interesting to me, to me in Scripture and in this, these accounts in Genesis 
is that oftentimes you see the sin of the father being duplicated by the son. If you recall, when Abraham was with Sarah and he was in another land, this king saw Sarah, and Sarah was a beautiful woman. And they asked, he inquired of Abraham, who is this? And he said, she is my sister. That didn't happen once. That happened twice. Uh, then you read the story of his son Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah was a beautiful woman. And when he's off with Rebekah in some foreign land, the king sees Rebekah and says, who is this? And guess what Isaac says? She's my sister. Uh, no, no, she's not your sister. She's your wife. And then you get down to Jacob. And Jacob is this great deceiver, deceives his dad into, uh, into giving him the blessing. Uh, you know, he, he is just a conniver and a deceiver. And then what do you see his sons doing? You see his sons deceiving him. And, and not only was he deceived by Laban into giving, being given the wrong wife, but he was deceived by his own sons. And, and this, this just about did him in. Uh, this stuff is all connected. It's all connected. Why, why is character such a big deal? Um, See, it's not the economy. That was the big thing a while back. Character is always the issue. Uh, character is, is what we pass on. Character is what we are modeling. Uh, as, as men, what we are called to do is to follow Christ. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. One of the things that the Lord wants to do in our lives is that he wants to grow us up. He wants to mature us. Uh, he, he wants to develop us in such a way that we can be trusted. Uh, what's interesting to me is when you study these guys, one of the things that you see, and you're going to see it in Joseph's life, is that Joseph is going to be tested. He's going to be tested in his character. When, when we pray and we say, Lord, would you use me? What you are doing is you are basically signing up. When you say, Lord, would you use me? You are signing up for God to put you to the test. Uh, God will test you before he uses you. And all the way through our lives, we are going to face issues of testing. Testing in terms of our obedience Testing in terms of our integrity. Uh, testing in, in terms of our willingness to step out in faith. Uh, this will happen over and over and over again. So jumping ahead real quick to Joseph. So his brothers sell him, they sell him into, into slavery. Uh, this, this, is what, this is what John Piper calls the unplanned place. That's a great term. Because somewhere in your life, you're going to find yourself in an unplanned place. Uh, you look at your life, you kind of scope it out, you kind of broad stroke it, you know, knowing a lot of details have got to be filled in. But, but you think about your life, you think about where you're going, you know, at certain points in your life, you got your markers and you expect this to be here at a certain point in life. 
what we're going to run into as men who are following Christ, at some point in your life, you're going to wind up in the unplanned place. And when you wind up in an unplanned place, you don't like where you are. So here's Chad, uh, you know, he's a fighter pilot in the Air Force. And, and so, you know, they think about the family deal, and this, uh, we don't want to be running all over the world, so we're going we're gonna to leave the military, I'm going to become an airline pilot. So he does. But then, but then, he's got this medical issue. Uh, for Chad, that was not in his plan. Because young guys that are healthy and fighter, they don't have those kind of medical issues. But you see, he did. That was the unplanned place. When you're in an unplanned place, here's what happens. Uh, uh, Your expectations are suddenly cut out from under you. Uh, Your assumptions are absolutely devastated. Your, your timing is absolutely thrown into complete and total chaos. That is all the work of the sovereign God. Uh, Piper goes on and he says this, when you find yourself in the unplanned pl- place, you're going to find your life moving at an unplanned pace. Let's say that again. When you find yourself in the unplanned place, you're going to find your life moving along at the un- unplanned pace. That's how God does it. We've got our time schedule. We've got our time frame. Do you think when Joseph was 17, do you think he had plans for his life for the next five years? I think he did. You know, He had some things he wanted to do. I'm sure he hoped to get married and you know, have family and kids and the whole thing and get his own deal going and all that. I'm sure that, I mean, that's what you did back then. I mean, that's just how it worked. But what happened to him? Uh, Suddenly, because of the hatred his brothers have, he's suddenly in a place he's never been before. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't know the culture. Instead of being free and instead of being blessed by his father, he's in slavery. And what's going to happen is his life is going, this unplanned place, his life is going to start moving at an unplanned pace. Part of, the, part of the reason for the unplanned place is that God is going to do some testing. Some testing. Uh, that's where God begins to test integrity. That's where God begins to test truthfulness. That's where God begins to test honesty. That's where God begins to test obedience. Um, Joseph's going to run into sexual immorality in the next chapter. It wasn't the first time he ran into it, and it wasn't the last time he ran into it. But he deals with it honestly, he passed the test. And God used him. So this week, when you encounter a test, just understand it's a test. Just understand that. 
This is what God does. He looks at the heart. And here's the thing. You keep flunking the test, you're going to keep being in the hard spot. You, you, you can stay there a real long time. You can go to summer school if you want. You can go through your senior year eight years in a row. Balls in your court. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. That you're simply trying to turn us into your men. Do you test us? Yeah. Do we always pass the test? No. Do we want everybody to think we always pass the test? Yeah. Do we? No. That's just where we are. We're guys. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We're so grateful for your forgiveness and your mercy and your kindness. For those of us, Lord, that are uh, in hard places, you know right where we are. You know every issue. You know every circumstance. You've got us there for a reason, and you have us there for a season. You want to do a deep work in our hearts. Help us to yield. Help us to trust. Help us to wait. Help us to seek you first. That's our prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name.